Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to be jumping into the book of Galatians. We started a couple weeks ago, a little series going through the book of Galatians. We're jumping back into it. And what I want to do right now is uh, we're going to begin to get ready to take a look at this. And I'm going to start by reading a passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on uh, this really just great passage that we're going to be looking at here today. Um, and we'll get to work on it. But let's begin by reading the text, let God speak to us, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. We're going to pick up at about verse 11, we'll go down to the end of the chapter, and follow along. It says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, nor I received, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. My people, so extremely zealous, was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and then I returned again to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the apostles, except James, the Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. And they only heard... The fact that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once used to try to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Father, we ask you right now that you would let your word begin to speak to our hearts. We want to understand it. We realize that as your word goes forth, that the hearing of your word produces faith. So we ask God that as your word is communicated, is conveyed, is like a seed being planted in hearts... By the hearers, Lord, we pray that it would be active, that both hearer and myself would simply be active agents, not only in receiving, but also in preaching. We wouldn't just merely be on the sidelines as inactive, but Lord, work this morning. God, let your word begin to move in our hearts, painting for us, broadening for us the picture of what the gospel is all about. So we ask God that you be glorified in everything we do here. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by giving a very, very fast background as to what we've looked at up in this point. The book of Galatians was written to a group of believers living in a region called Galatia. It was sort of like a large region um, covering kind of the middle section of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, this was an area that Paul had visited. Uh, Paul was this guy that used to be a great, as we just read, kind of a great persecutor of the church. God saved him, radically saved him, radically transformed him. Then Paul became a missionary, a pastor. He would go around uh, to different churches, plant, or different areas, planting churches. Uh, he who once persecuted churches now is actually uh, planting churches. God's using him in a great way. And what Paul is now doing is he's going to these Gentiles. These are non-Jews. These are types of people that Paul normally, prior to his conversion, would have never had any association with. Paul would have not hung out with them. He wouldn't have played football with them. He wouldn't drink coffee with them. He wouldn't do anything with Gentile people. But now, because of the gospel's impact and effect upon Paul's life, he's 
doing all these things. He's living among them. He's serving among them. He's loving them. He's literally giving his flesh and bones to be poured out as an offering to these people whom Jesus loves and whom now consequently, because the gospel's affected Paul, whom he actually loves. That's the beauty of the gospel. So Paul's doing that. So then Paul ends up having to leave these churches that he plants. These are Gentile believers. And in Paul's place, there were these religious leaders that were also Jews. They were Jews that had found some sense of conversion, meaning they accepted Christ as Savior, as Lord, as King, as God, as the Messiah. And yet these guys were not able to separate culture from religion. Now, I know that's kind of a hard thing for us to understand in today's culture because we are, as a westernized civilization, we always separate culture from religion. This is the way we do it. But if you were to, let's say, live in the Middle East, uh, probably one of the best examples of this today would be sort of like hardcore, ultra-Orthodox Jews or even, let's say, Muslims. They don't make any distinction between culture and religion. It's the same. There's no bifurcation. It's all the same. It's all the same. So these guys that were coming into the church after Paul had left were not able to make any distinction between culture and religion or relationship with God. And so therefore they would come in and they were saying to these Gentile people that didn't look the same way they looked, that didn't dress the same way they dressed, that didn't do the same ceremonies that they did. And these guys were basically saying, look, you need to dress the same way that we dress. You need to obtain or follow the same ceremonies that we follow. You need to act in the same ways that we act. You need to live according to the law of Moses the way that we live according to the law of Moses. In other words, they were sort of superimposing or straightjacketing their cultural experience and identity and uniqueness over these Gentile believers. And in turn, it was basically creating great chaos. In other words, we looked at this last week. What they were basically doing is they were saying, Jesus plus cultural adaptation leads to right relationship with God. We see this in the, same, in the church today, except it's not the exact same thing. People aren't going around saying you've got to culturally adapt to circumcision, culturally adapt to growing a big beard, culturally adapt to wearing a, you know, a robe or a dress. You don't have, that's, that's not the issue today. Today in our culture, we say it's Jesus plus speaking in tongues, Jesus plus being all into end times biblical prophecy, Jesus plus knowing everything that the discernment ministry people preach, Jesus plus church government, Jesus plus our cause, Jesus plus our ideas, Jesus plus our book, Jesus plus our leader. Get the idea? That's the way we do it today. And we go in, people go in, and they create chaos amongst churches. Because people who used to once know Jesus in the simplicity of Jesus alone are now very confused. Or, if they're not confused, if they buy into it, if they adapt to it, they end up becoming just like these Judaizer people. They become very critical. They become a group of people that are literally eating each other alive. They become cannibalistic. They destroy themselves. Because everybody now, just like the Judaizers were doing, they were beginning now to become sort of circumcision inspectors. They're going around looking at everybody. Are you evangelizing on Thursday nights? You're not evangelizing on Thursday nights? I thought you were a Christian. Are you going out and doing these good works for God? Are you involved in a cause? If you're not involved in a cause, then you really can't be a Christian. Have you preached and spoken and done stuff in tongues? If you're not doing spiritual stuff in tongues, you're really not a Christian. It's the way it works. And people end up getting overwhelmed with the sense of guilt. Or they become people that are very self-righteous, self-centered, and arrogant. 
And they start inspecting everybody. That's what was happening. So Paul is writing this letter in response to this group of believers that have bought into these lies. And now, in turn, have become very troubled. And so he's trying to get them to come back to Jesus alone. To get them to come back to following Christ alone. And trying to put cultural parameters in the right place. In other words, if you really want to look at it this way, for all of you astrophysicist types, Paul wants to make sure that Jesus is the son of the solar system and everything else has its proper orbit. Get that? You're like, yeah, I'm all into astrophysics. Yeah, right. I, I knew it. All you guys looked that smart. But the point of the matter is, is Paul says, I want to make sure that Jesus is the center of all things and that everything else has its proper order and orbit around that chief central concept of Jesus alone. So, does that make sense? That's where Paul's going with all this. So what Paul now begins to do is he has to defend his apostleship. Because what was going on is these false leaders were basically coming in. They were saying, Paul has no idea what he's talking about. We've got to belittle Paul. We've got to make it look like Paul has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. So therefore, we know what we're talking about. And therefore, you can dismiss Paul's message and just listen to what we have to say. You've got to be really careful of pastors like that. Sometimes pastors do this in very subversive ways. You know, church down the street, heretic. If you listen to them, it's heresy. Sometimes people need to be called out if they are preaching heresy. But sometimes religious types, like what Paul is dealing with, they don't know how to differentiate, differentiate between essential doctrinal truths and non-essential doctrinal truths. They just have this tendency or propensity of lumping them all together. And so anytime there is any type of cultural or subordinate doctrinal difference, they just write them off. Just write them off. And they do this by defaming them, by discrediting them. And in doing so, they're actually boosting themselves up, trying to increase their own authority factor. In some ways, that's kind of what Paul is doing, only in Paul's case, he's not trying to say, look, I'm the authority. It's not what he's trying to do. Paul's actually trying to say, the only reason why I have authority is because the gospel has given me the authority. Paul even will go on to say, we looked at this last week, he says, if, I, if even I come and I preach a different gospel... Kick me out of the church. Don't let me be a part of it. The gospel gives me my authority. Paul's not saying I give gospel authority. He's saying the gospel. God's word gives me authority, not the reverse. So with that being said, one of the things we begin to see sort of in this little section where Paul is now defending himself and trying to reestablish the authority of the gospel by saying how he received the gospel himself, he's going to go into a little bit of a background about how he came to know Jesus, how he came into relationship with Christ. How God shined upon Paul's life. Paul received the gospel himself. Paul became a changed man. Paul's going to begin to point out now several evidences within his own life that are, that are actual proof of what God has done in his life. Now I want to basically try to make the same distinction as we're going to look at this. We're going to look at a handful of items. We're going to try to see as far as we can get through these things. But what I want for us to think about is that Paul's really going to be pointing out evidences of grace. And that's what I want to try to do. Is I want to try to look at some of these things that have happened in Paul's life and then ask ourselves the same question. Are we really evidences of God's grace? Are we living truly in God's grace? Now, theologians throughout the ages have sort of made this distinction between what they call common grace and special grace. Common grace is things like we breathe, we live, we enjoy sunlight, and we have bacon. Common grace, common grace. 
I mean, God is so good to all mankind. He gives us all of these things. Life is good. There's that sense where we can just simply look at everything we have and just realize there is a God. That's what Romans chapter 1 talks about. It's common grace. So everybody in reality is without excuse. But then there's special grace. Theologians define it as this way. When God opens our eyes, where it's not just simply that we're enjoying certain things that everybody takes for granted, like the Old Testament again says, God causes the rain and the sun to shine and rain upon the just, as well as the unjust. God blesses everybody in a very common, general sense. But in a special sense, what God does is he opens our eyes to where now we love Jesus. We see Jesus. Our lives are changed by Jesus. Our desires change. So rather than having desires that are for things that are destructive to our lives, destructive to, destructive to our social environment, that might be our family, or to our spouses, or to our job, or whatever type of behavioral patterns that will destroy our life and our world and our culture. God now wants to restore that and redeem that all through Jesus. These are examples of special grace. So if you're here and you look at your life and you're like, there was a time where you used to not love Jesus, not used to really love Jesus with your heart, now you love Jesus, that's an example of special grace. God has been good. God opened your eyes. He changed you. You literally are a miracle. But here's the reason why I want to raise this this issue today. Because of the simple fact, there is this sense, in, in America especially, there is a culture of Christian, Christianity. We live in a culture that in a lot of ways, that's very steeped in Christian ideologies, Christian cultures. In a lot of ways, people still call ourselves a Christian nation. We have Christian values. Uh, maybe some of you guys watched this past week, God in America. I recorded some of it. I went online, pbs.org, and watched some, a, rest, a handful of other shows of it. It's a great story, great kind of outline, overlay of God in America. In a lot of ways, uh, the predominant mentality in America is God is with us. And we are a Christian nation, and therefore, in a lot of ways, it's sort of even kind of bred this arrogance of, therefore, we've got to dominate everybody because we are the way, the truth, and the life because we are God's special chosen people. And there's this arrogance that's about that that I think God wants to sort of unveil and bring about this awareness that just because we may be part of a nation that claims to be Christian, or just because we might be part of a culture here in San Luis Obispo or on the Central Coast that has a very high Christian rate, I want to make certain that you guys, that you get the gospel. I want to make certain that you guys really understand it. Be really honest with you, a few months ago when we had our baptism, I was blessed. We had, I don't know, over 60 people get baptized, 70, I don't even know how many, it was 70 to 80, something like that, I think is what it was. Over 50 people gave their testimony. It's a lot of people. But to be really frank with you, I was troubled by some of the testimonies, to be quite frank. Because some of them were just, I used to be messed up, and now I'm being baptized. Some of them were just, you know, I was a bad person before, but now I'm a Christian. Now this is me. There wasn't a lot of emphasis upon Jesus saved me, rescued me. And the reality is I think there's a tendency for us as a church, for people to come here because it's like they like the music, it's contextual, they enjoy it, it's upbeat, whatever the case is. They like the pastor, they like a particular style of preaching, or when the guy yells at you, gets all fired up, they're like, I like that. Or they like a particular group or social order of people. But far be it from us, if we don't get the gospel, it just simply succumb to just cultural likes. We've got to get the gospel. 
This is so serious to the Apostle Paul. And I want to make certain that we get it and live it and understand it and live it and breathe it so that we somehow don't just simply become a group of people that are just about coolness, just about a hip factor. It's not what this is about. If that's all this is about, then we might as well shut the doors of the church and part, go other places. We need to be about the cross, about the gospel that saves and transforms and changes, and not in word only, but in deed. This is why it's so important to Paul. Be really frank with you. There are a lot of better hobbies. It's, this has never really made sense to me. Some Christians take Christianity as a hobby. It's like, just go to church. It's a hobby. It's my social group. It's a hobby. Look, there's a lot of better hobbies we can take up. Go buy a boat. Boats are great. You can go fishing. You can go surfing at the ranch. Boats are better than Christianity as a hobby. Amen? It's totally okay to get Pentecostal on that one. That was very quotable. The reality is this. I want to make certain that we get the gospel. Does the pastor normally yell at this? Sometimes. I get fired up, all right? Sorry if I scared you, but my point is this. I want to make sure that we get it. Because everything, everything rises or is destroyed based upon the gospel. This is not an optional doctrine. This is not something that we have any possibility to get wrong. We've got to get it right. That's why Paul's writing this letter. This whole letter is about making sure the Galatian people get the gospel correct. Let's jump in. We're going to take a look at some of these evidences. We're going to see how far we can get. First one is this. When the evidence of knowing that you get the gospel is this. The gospel that's received... It's received as revelation, not just simply information. Verse 11 says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of God. Paul's basically saying, look, everything I'm telling you guys, I didn't make up. We didn't sit around. Peter actually talks about it. He says, you know, we're not following cunningly devised fables. There's not a bunch of people sitting around in the back room after Jesus died and talking about, hey, what's a great religion that we can begin? Let's steal some obscure passages from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, other, a couple other passages. Let's sort of bring them together. Let's make this whole story up. Let's make up a story about God incarnating himself, coming into this world. And you know what? Hey, what about, what about this? What about if God, who incarnates himself in his son, dies? Wouldn't that be awesome? Basically, his point is we didn't make this up. We didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. Paul's saying, this was given to me by revelation. God revealed it to me. And just to make sure that people are not like, maybe this is just a subjective experience that Paul had. Paul is going to tell you that originally he ends up going to Jerusalem. He kind of cross-references the gospel that he received with the guys in Jerusalem. And he finds out it's the exact same gospel. We're talking, this is miraculous here. Paul did not have any interactions with the people in Jerusalem. Other than realizing, I mean, there was, there was no relationship whatsoever with these guys. So Paul's saying, I'm preaching the same gospel that these guys are preaching in Jerusalem. Peter, James, all these guys. We're all in the same boat. All in the same basic, you know, spreadsheet. Everything is literally the same. Because I received it by way of revelation. So what Paul's going to say earlier, 
is that even if I come back and I tell you something different than what I originally delivered to you, kick me out of the church. Even if an angel comes, big, powerful, mighty, almighty, strong angel and light tells you this is the wrong gospel, Paul says, kick him out. Kick him out. You don't even want him there either. Paul's point is that this gospel that I have, that I've received, it's not just simply information that I have. It's actual revelation. I'm going to say this about the gospel. Christianity really is one of the only religions that is both objective and subjective. What I mean by that, objective means truth that comes from the outside, comes from the outside down to you or to you. Um, subjective meaning it's truth that you feel inside. And the predominant way in which people think in the age in which we live in today is very subjective. The way that most people think today is if it feels right, if this is the way that I think, if this is the way that I think is correct to me, then it's definitely the way it's correct, should be correct for, for everybody in a sense. Um, even though it may, obviously it's going to come into some conflict with other people, but the reality is we kind of have this mentality of if it's right for you, that's fine. That's not right for me, but what's right for me is this. And so we have all these sort of conflicting notions and ideas and opinions and speculations. But Paul is saying, we're not making this stuff up. This is not subjective. This is objective. Objective truth has come into our lives from God by way of revelation. God spoke. We heard. But it's also subjective. Meaning that Paul says, if you read the first few verses here in verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It didn't come from me. I didn't receive it from any man. I was taught it. Then Paul's going to go on and say, but you've heard of my former life in verse 13 in Judaism, how I persecuted the church, how I did this, how I did that, yet God changed me. Let me put it to you this way. If you claim to have knowledge of certain theological concepts and truths, but there is no experience in your life with the living God. You're not a Christian. You're part of the culture. You may be part of the group, the club. You may be part of kind of a social movement that's Christianized or even sanitized, but you're not a Christian. Don't deceive yourself. Doesn't matter how many verses you know. Doesn't matter even if you read your Bible daily. Please remember, scribes and Pharisees did the exact same thing. They were scholars. They were theologians. They understood the scriptures. They read the scriptures. And Jesus basically turns to them and says, you guys search the scriptures. You know them. But in them, they testify of me. And life is what I came to give to you. Subjective life. That you would experience me. That you would know me. But you have not experienced me. You have not known me. Therefore, what you claim to be truth or objective revelation from God actually has led to your death. Because Christianity doesn't somehow separate the two, subjective from the objective. It actually marries them together. It says you must have an objective revelation coming from God, but then a subjective response or experience to that revelation. So the objective actually destroys the speculative and shapes are subjective. All right, you're like, can you quote that again? I'll try. Just came up. The, the objective actually crushes the speculative. In other words, it just doesn't make any room for speculation. But then it begins to shape our subjective. It shapes how we feel. That means that everything we experience with God has to be referenced or placed under the banner of the objective revelation of God. 
Christians are people, people who have experienced God's grace, are people that have come to the realization that God's word, the Bible, is not just mere information. It's not just tantalizing thoughts, concepts, historical arguments. It's not just that. But it's divine revelation. It's from God. It's God speaking to me. It's God showing me who he is. God showing me who I am and what I need to be in and through his own son, Jesus. So the second thing I want you to notice is this. One of the other evidences of grace in our lives is our spiritual depravity is clearly seen. Our spiritual depravity is clearly seen. Take a look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Paul basically points out in this little verse, he says, I was very zealous for the traditions of my father. And then Paul's going to essentially point out, he says, but God came in and rescued me. So Paul's going to be pointing out this transitional word, but, but Jesus, or but God, uh, comes in, changes him, changes him from what he once was. Paul recognizes his life before coming to Christ, what it was all like. In Philippians, he describes it as dung. It was just trash. It was poop, literally is what he says. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And the reality is he wants us to understand, identify his past life was just full of depravity, moral depravity, evil, wickedness. I was not in right relationship with God. But what I want you to notice is Paul's form of depravity was not the way that we oftentimes in the church identify depravity. I mean, Paul was not like a pimp. He wasn't a drug lord. He wasn't a kingpin. He wasn't on the block. It's not Paul's testimony. Paul was not doing that, right? Paul was, Paul was not in a gang. He was none of these things. That's not the sin or moral depravity that Paul had found himself living in. Paul says simply this. Listen to what he says again. He says, but I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is Paul's idolatry. This is exactly what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says, you guys have made the traditions of the Father to be even bigger than, broader than the oracles of God, the word of God itself. Do you know that it's actually possible to be very religious, to go to church every Sunday, to be part of a Bible study, to be part of a prayer group, to be doing all sorts of religious, traditionalistic types of things, but in reality, be depending upon those as being your means of being right with God? I mean, you can be the type of person that doesn't cuss, you don't drink any type of form or alcohol, you don't smoke. In fact, you're so pious, you look at everybody that does those things, and you look at them with disgust. You've committed the worst sin of all. You're prideful, just like Satan. Just like Satan. That was Paul. He says, I realized my depravity lay in my love for traditions. Love for the cause of Judaism. And he says, but God opened my eyes. I saw things for what they really were. It's kind of a funny thing today, but in today's world, in a lot of ways, there's not a lot of talk over brokenness of sin. There really isn't. Christians, a lot of times, I mean, think about this. I I, I can't tell you what to think for yourself. I'm just, I I ask you to think about your life. Think about how you came to Christ. Think about your present experience with Christ. How do you think about your sin? 
The problem is, in a lot of ways, our culture is constantly telling us, you're not sinful, you're not bad. Modern day psychology has this propensity to basically say, in the essence of who we are, we're actually good. We start out with a blank slate, and really we begin to make choices along life that lead us to sort of uh, realms of depravity or the circle of friends that we choose or the people that live around us. Um, that really, we start out good, and we end up making choices that lead to bad things. But Paul's point is that, no, 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 I, I was depraved from the very beginning. I, I needed desperate help from the very beginning. I needed God to intervene. But I was so blind, I didn't even see my own depravity. I didn't even see my sin until God came in and showed me. And maybe this is where some of you guys are. Maybe this is one of the reasons why there's this tendency to sort of get people to like say the sinner's prayer. Like, we've got to get you to say the sinner's prayer. Because if you don't say the sinner's prayer, we're not even sure if you're saved. So I'll say a prayer for you, and then you just repeat after me, and everything's hunky-dory. We can skip to our loot, and everything will be wonderful. You'll go to heaven. And there's like no tears, no repentance, no recognition of evil or depravity or sin. There's just sort of this kind of casualness about it. It's like no big deal. Let me put it this way. I don't have any problem necessarily with sinner's prayer or anything like that, leading someone in Jesus, leading someone to think about these types of things and be meaningful. I'm just kind of slamming it because there is a tendency this is it, my point. There is a tendency for us to think that's the magic bullet. You just get them to say it, it's all good. You just get them to say it, it's all fine. Everything's done. It's like getting them to sign a contract. It's like you're a used car salesman. And you're just getting them to sign the dotted line. As soon as they sign the dotted line, everything's fine. But Paul's saying, I recognize my depravity. I recognize who I was before God, and I desperately needed help. See, there's a lot of tendency, I think, within the Christian church to want to talk a lot about this abundant life that God gives. And I'm all for talking about the abundant life that God gives. But before we can begin to talk about the abundancy of God's life, we got to begin to talk about the abundancy of our deadness. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead before God. And unless God intervenes, unless God shines down, unless God moves over our soul the way the Holy Spirit brooded over the earth to bring life and substance and beauty then we're just dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. And the reality is we've got to recognize that. The good news, in a lot of ways, comes on the heels of this recognition of the bad news, that we are dead. We're in desperate need of God's help. And so Paul points out the reality that this is what ends up happening. So if you're claiming to be a Christian, and you just kind of look at your life as just simply having Jesus as his addition, I I think it's part of the problem. We view Jesus as sort of this addition. Jesus is the one that comes along. He helps me with my marriage. Jesus helps me with my finances. Jesus helps me feel better. Jesus helps my causes. Jesus helps me get a new car. Jesus helps me get through school. Jesus is nothing more than just simply an agent of helping you to do what you want to do. At the end of the day, who's Lord in that relationship? It's you. It's not God. But when we recognize the fact that the real structure is that he's God. and We've sinned either by moral wickedness, all the things that I described that Paul wasn't, or all the things that Paul was. Then in reality, we've not, I, don't, I, I really don't even think we've truly grasped the gospel. I don't think we've grasped it. The third thing is this. Jesus ultimately becomes everything in our lives. Take a look, look at verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he who called me by his grace, 
He says, I was, it was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him. Basically what Paul's saying is that in another place, he says, I was apprehended. I wasn't seeking God. This is kind of the irony with Paul compared to or juxtaposed to modern day culture. I mean, we have whole churches that are sort of geared around this concept of the seeker. Like, there are people actually seeking for God. And the point of the matter is, I think there are people that are religious, that are trying to understand things, and I think we need to somehow be able to speak in terms that would help people understand God. But in reality, what Paul's saying, I really wasn't seeking for Christ. In fact, I was out to try to kill all of his followers. But one day, God came upon me. God knocked me off my horse. God knocked me out of my senses. I literally became blind. I couldn't see anything. All of this happened to me. I was just merely an agent whereby God came upon me. His agency overshadowed me. His agency came through me, radically transformed me. That's what the gospel did to Paul. In other words, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In describing his own conversion, he says, I was the object rather than the subject in this affair. He says, I was decided upon. I was glad afterwards at the way it came out. But at the moment, what I heard was God saying, put down your gun and we'll talk. I chose, yet it really did not seem possible to do the opposite. So Paul's saying. So I was on my horse. I was about to kill people. All of a sudden, God came upon me. I had no other choice but to give up, to surrender. But Paul began to realize his life now took on a whole new shape. I want you to turn real quick to Acts chapter 9. I want to read this story. It's really kind of cool. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, uh, beginning about verse 20, it says this. For some days, this is immediately after Paul got saved. It says, for some days... He was with his disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. So get this, immediately, I mean, Paul gets saved, gets knocked off his horse. Everything's radically changed for Paul. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest everybody, and everything got, you know, basically Paul gets arrested, right? He's not doing the arresting. God arrested Paul, and now he's, in a sense, a prisoner of God. Not making prisoners, but a prisoner of God. And if any of you think, like, what a horrible God, he prisoned Paul, but you got to think of it this way. Paul's like, no, it was the most joyous lockup, all right? I was locked up by God. He goes, you know, look, let me try to put it this way. Paul was like, I was going the wrong direction. It'd be like, I was on the wrong bus, and I forgot the transfer. I didn't even know there was a transfer, and God, in grace and goodness, came, snatched me off the bus that was hellbound, put me on the right bus, and I didn't even know it, except in the moment that God did all of it. That's what Paul's saying. So Paul has this radical experience where now it's as if God recenters into his entire life, removes the idols, crushes all of his preconceived ideas about who Jesus is, and God centers Christ in the middle of Paul's life. And it says that immediately he goes in and begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him, they were amazed, and they said, is this not the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for that purpose? So all these guys are skeptical of him, obviously. You can imagine, you'd probably do the same thing. You'd be like, this, wasn't this the guy that was some, here to kill me? Like, he's preaching Jesus at church? This is awkward. And then he goes on, he says, and, was, and he was not come here to, for this purpose to bring them bound before 
uh, the chief priest. So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's Paul's whole point. Literally, Paul's life gets transformed, rearranged to where Jesus now is the center of everything in Paul's life. You know that's what Christianity is all about? Christianity is a realigning of our lives. You know that Christians are the only ones that really ever wake up in the morning and ask the question, okay, Lord, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do with my life today? God, what school do you really want me to go to? God, what career choice do you want me to take? God, do you want me to move? God, do you want me to get involved in this church? Where do you want me to get involved in this church? Yes, God wants you to be involved in a church somewhere. And it's absolute. But where, God, do you want me to be involved in the church? Serving, loving, giving, supporting, helping, praying. Where? Only Christians ask those questions because Jesus is Lord. That's the point. That's the big idea that Jesus becomes the point in the center of our entire lives. That's what it was with Paul. Jesus was the center of Paul's sermon topics. Jesus was the center of Paul's causes. Jesus was the center of Paul's Bible reading. Jesus was the center of everything. If you haven't figured this out yet, and if you read your Bibles without viewing it with, especially in the New Testament letters, realizing that everything is centered around Jesus, the early church was actually called a Jesus community. They were a community of people centered around Jesus. Jesus is center for everything. The gospel is central in all things. I've said this past few weeks. I'm going to keep saying because I want to make sure that we get it. The gospel is not just simply a message that the preacher yells at non-believers, urging them to get saved. I've said this before. It's not just the ABCs for how to tell the sinner to get saved. The gospel is the A to Zs of everything in the Christian life. That's what Paul's big idea is is that Jesus is now the center of everything. So everything in my life takes its shape and its form from the center point of Jesus being there. In other words, how am I supposed to forgive, right? Anybody have anybody in their life right now, you gotta forgive? Everybody, right? Nobody raise their hand. I'm just assuming that you guys are all right on, right? But the reality is, we all have somebody we've gotta forgive somewhere, right? Double hands, yes. And the reality is, how do we do that? Well, the Bible's answer to that is just as God forgave you in Christ Jesus, so you now forgive others. See, Jesus is there. He's the center of it. He's the fulcrum. He's the center of it all. How do we love our spouses? How do we love our husbands? Well, Jesus. Just as Jesus loved the church, so husbands love your spouses. Uh, love your wives. How, how do we love our kids? It, again, it keeps going down. How are we supposed, if you're a business owner, how do you treat your employees? Well, it's just the same way that Jesus dealt with his uh, servants, love them, serve them, help them, take care of them, lay his life down for them. The same way, do the same. The point is, is that the Christian life is a reshifting, a recalibration, a rethinking of the way everything we used to live in light of Jesus. If your life is still being lived in a way where Jesus is just not on your mind at all, it's very possible you're not a Christian. Does it mean I gotta be perfect? No, because nobody is. Nobody's going to be. But let me ask you, do you even, do you live like that? Do you live with asking the question, how does God want you to live? Where is Jesus in my life? How does God want me to serve him today? If that's not you, or if at least to some degree, some level, you at least want that to be true, it's very possible you're not a Christian. You might just be part of the culture, the society of Christianity, 
a peer group of Christians. One of my favorite preachers, by, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, lived in Victorian England. He was always criticizing Victorian England. He basically would say Victorian England was a, was a community of people that were all about Christian ideals, Christian morality, and he likened it to people being overshadowed by the gospel, but the gospel never really penetrating them. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been in a community, in a culture where the gospel has been everywhere around you. Your friends, your family, grandma, people that you know, next door neighbors, your group of uh, people that you hang out with, but it's never actually penetrated into your heart, into your soul, whereby you've been laid bare. You've seen your depravity before God. You've repented of sin, and you've recalibrated your life under the power of the Holy Spirit to now where Christ is the center of all things. Got to move on. Fifth, fourth thing is this. Destructive habits and biases are transformed into redemptive opportunities. Destructive habits and biases are transformed into redemptive opportunities. Verse 16 says this. God revealed his son in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is absolutely astounding. I, I could literally spend an entire message just on this one little verse. There's a lot here. I mean, we can read it. It doesn't make that big a deal. But if you were a first century Jew, and you were a first century Jew who was familiar with this, uh, this order uh, or this sect of religious belief called the Pharisees, you'd be astounded by the fact that Paul said, what? Paul's like, I'm going to the Gentiles now? You've got to understand, the religious sect of Jews called the Pharisees were so a religious, so sacred, so sanctimonious, they held to the tradition of the law, that literally the letter of the law. Remember, a lot of times Jesus kind of butted heads with these guys over everything. You know, they were complaining to Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands in the ceremonial way before they eat dinner. And they're all frustrated by that. Jesus is like, look, there's bigger things to worry about, like worrying about the widow that you guys are abusing and taking advantage of. Right? That makes God a little bit more frustrated in the fact that my disciples forgot to wash their hands. Right? No big deal. You guys don't understand the balance of all things. But Paul was the type of guy that probably would have never had any type of relationship whatsoever with Jews or with Gentiles. He would have never probably even associated with anybody outside of his sect of elite Judaism, which would have been the Pharisees. But now because Paul met Jesus, his life's changed. And Paul says, look, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Let me try to bring this home a little bit. Let's say we all lived in New York City three weeks after the 9-11 deal. Let's say all of your moms and dads were in the building and they died. And in between the time of the towers coming down to three, three weeks after that, you met Jesus. You came to know Christ. And you have this great anger and hatred towards Muslims because of what they did. Or at least that's how you view it. all the things that everything shaped. Your anger, your frustration, your pain is, is poised against these, this group of people because of what happened. And all of a sudden, you meet Jesus and God says, I want to send you to a Muslim nation to go love those people. Go serve them. It's kind of like what Paul was doing. He's like, I'm going to go to the Gentile people and preach the gospel to them. Were they filthy? Were they dirty in and of themselves? I mean, of course, they were sinners. Was there sin making the Jews unceremonially clean or in right relationship with God? They thought that. So there were these biases. There were these sinful biases that Paul had to get over culturally in order to become an agent used by God. And this is exactly what grace does. Grace changes the way that we think. 
It changes the way that we deal with people, and as a result of that, we think differently about the gospel, we think differently about other people. And so what ends up happening is these destructive habits and biases that Paul had are now turned, transformed in these redemptive opportunities where Paul, rather than looking at Gentiles as evil, wicked people, like sausage to be barbecued on God's grill for all eternity, he saw them now as opportunities, as potential recipients of the gospel, of the grace of Christ. And so Paul goes out to them. One of the best ways you'll be able to identify to know if you're a Christian If truly Christianity has not just simply overshadowed you, but if it's penetrated you, how do you feel about your enemies? How do you feel about them? Do you still look at them with spite? And who are your enemies? How do you view these people that do things differently? Do you feel the need to criticize everyone that thinks different, acts different, looks different, dresses different, has different traditions than you? Let me put it this way. Paul's world, one of the best ways to identify this, I'm going to wrap it up right here. One of the best ways to identify this is whether or not the gospel has come into your life is your world actually gets bigger, not smaller. Religion makes your world small. Religious people are small people. Let me describe what I mean. Religious people that live under massive, large sets of rules they can't love people that don't love and live according to the same rules. They can't. They'd be in violation themselves. They would be violating things. So what religious people do is they become very arrogant. They look down upon people. They become ultra-critical of other people. They become cold-hearted. They become different types of people that feel like they need to persecute and disdain anybody. They're the type of people that when they go to a church and when they're sitting in a group of people that don't look like them or don't Uh, fall under their category of what holiness should look like. They end up leaving the church. They blog about that church afterwards. They're frustrated with that church. They tell other people, don't go to that church, don't go to that community of people because they have this idea, this ideology in their mind that's really nothing more than traditions. They're traditions of men that for the most part they made up or they had some other person in their life tell them that this is how you need to live according to. In other words, their world is very small. But people who meet Jesus, people who engage the gospel, people who have the gospel penetrate them, the world becomes suddenly massive because God's a big God. And Paul begins to realize for the first time in his life, there is a whole world out there that has never heard of Jesus. This is why, by the way, Paul is actually, as a converted Pharisee, was able to actually go to these Gentile people and sit down with people whose names were like Jupiter or Zeus, or Titus, names that were actually given to them by moms and dads who worshiped these gods. And Paul's like, you know what? Since you guys have Jesus in your life, we're all brothers now. We're in Christ. We can love each other. We can serve one another because my world has become big because I got a big God and God set me free. So really in your life, are you religious? Have you just had a religious experience? Do you just know rules? Do you just know speculations? Or have you had revelation? Has God come to you? Has the gospel penetrated your life? The best way to answer that question is how big is your world? How big is your world? How much can you actually love? How much can you actually embrace people? This is why Jesus could actually go to prostitutes and sit down in their house, have dinner with them, and not feel as if there's anything in terms of violation of 
code or ethic or morality. But everybody around that that was religious was absolutely freaking out. Why? Because the world's small. The world didn't open up to the doors to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to non-religious folk. But people who are penetrated by the gospel, the world becomes big. You guys, the gospel is worth fighting for. I'm going to finish right now. We're going to wrap it up. I'm going to have the team come on up. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to respond to the gospel. We're going to respond. This is why we're here today. This is why we gather. It's not just simply, again, to get information, to fill our minds with thoughts and concepts and ideas. But ultimately, it's so that we would worship God, so that we would meet with God. And that God speaks to us through his word. And in response, because it's not only objective, but there's subjective, that we want to respond. We want to personally give ourselves back to God. We want to respond in a way that however God has spoken to us, maybe for some of us, it is that forgiveness is an issue in our life. We've got to get over that. We've got to take that to the cross. We've got to take that to Jesus. In fact, one of the best ways to even get over that hump of forgiveness or frustration, feeling like, how can I forgive someone? We have communion in the back. I encourage you, partake of the communion. And as you partake of the communion, remember that as you eat the bread and as you drink the juice that comes from the cup that you would remember. It's because Jesus' body was broken, because Jesus' blood was shed, that God actually forgave your debt to Him, which is far bigger than any other debt anybody has ever owed you. It puts everything in the right orbit, where Jesus and the gospel is the center of all things. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to repent of sin, Hardcore, moralistic type sin. Some of you are religious. And you've been leaning upon your religion. And you need to confess that. Repent from that. Just like Paul did. And come to Jesus. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We'll partake of communion. If you're here, you need prayer. Just grab someone maybe next to you. Have them pray for you. I'm going to pray right now for us. We're going to sing. Respond to God. Confess sin. Partake of communion. Give my praise. God, we thank you that you are a God that's not distant. You're here. You're not far away. You're right here. So God, right now we humbly bend our knee to you. We humbly confess you as Lord, Savior, over all things. Beginning in our hearts. It's what we want to be true. We don't want to be overshadowed by gospel truths. We don't want to merely live in a gospel environment. We want the gospel to penetrate, to penetrate our very being. When that happens, God, we realize our own depravity before you. And even bigger than our own depravity, we realize the great grace and the love of God that was demonstrated on the cross. You are a just God. You will judge sin. You have judged sin. But it's your love that seeks to bring about repentance in our lives. So we confess these things to you. We worship you right now.